0: well uh, i'd like to preach to you a one-off sermon this evening on the fear of the lord as the beginning of wisdom and if you have a bible and you'd like to turn with me we go to proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 where we read exactly that Um, uh, solomon in the uh, book of ecclesiastes that we've been reading has uh, several times already recommended to us the fear of the lord that's the beginning of wisdom he's not done doing so and uh, this, in so many ways, is going to summarize his counsel to us. What then does it mean? And how does that apply to us? Why, why is it the beginning of wisdom? And um, how can we live that out as Christians in our world today? Well, some of the questions for today uh, I'd like to read to you from Proverbs chapter 9, just the single verse from verse 10 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Amen. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us first things first, and that you would give us a a good understanding of yourself, that we might know you as you are, and know ourselves as we ought. We pray that uh, you would answer the deep questions in our hearts about how we can understand and apply this in our lives That we might be well uh, taught and corrected and uh, rebuked and uh, so um, instructed in righteousness that we might be equipped for every good work we are thankful for the inspiration of your word to us and uh, pray that it would be a light now to our feet in jesus name amen biblical religion is often referred to in the Bible as the fear of the Lord. It's just a a, a synonym for godliness many times. It's the foundation also for everything else. Ecclesiastes that we have been reading, I hate to give you a spoiler, but turning to the last page, we read, let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. This is a summary of of the duty of the godly man. Since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, we read in Hebrews, let us serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. This is not just some Old Testament concept. It is a New Testament concept just as well. John Murray, one of the last century's best theologians in my view, said the fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. The fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. To be devoid of the fear of God is, is to be devoid of biblical religion. After that uh, terrible list of things that characterize the, the natural man, we, we read in Romans chapter 3 of the ungodly, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Mike drop. Uh, that is to say, nothing more could possibly be said that uh, people are by nature enemies of god they have no fear of god so we can we can say that unless you have some personal and experiential knowledge and understanding of the fear of the lord you literally don't know the first thing in religion the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom we read elsewhere the beginning of knowledge and many other things and if we are to grow in that wisdom and knowledge as individuals as a church we need to maintain and increase that fear of god it is presented to us in the Bible as the determining attitude of a godly heart and life. It is the characteristic mark of the people of God. A great animating and invigorating principle. A wellspring of our godly desires and aspirations. Do you desire to be a godly person? Then you must understand and grow in the fear of the, of the Lord. So, so it is that when the second wisest man ever to live, as far as I know, Solomon, Solomon, set out uh, on the purpose of 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 writing a book of wisdom which we call proverbs he begins it with uh, these words the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge Uh, it's the last line of his introduction the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge back in chapter one and you might not have noticed but he ends his work on the same theme proverbs 31 ends with these words charm is deceitful and beauty is vain but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And, and so it is that if you like, in the bookends of this book, we, we, we have uh, some instruction on the fear of the Lord as the foundation of all right thinking and right living in the world, in the world. But um, you may have already been thinking, now, what exactly is the fear of the Lord again? And how is it the beginning of wisdom and maybe not one of the things that might come later on? and how, how does it make us wise? For life? These are very good questions that I'll be taking up one after the other this evening. Um, that'll be our outline. What's the fear of the Lord? How is it the beginning of wisdom? And how does it actually make us wise for life? So let's consider these three. First, what is the fear of the Lord? Um, the term that used to be in more common use to be a God-fearing person is sounds rather antiquated These days, I think, more and more translations of the Bible are taking out the word fear altogether. And as I mentioned earlier, people just uh, want to get by that as quickly as possible and say, you know, it just means awe or um, maybe uh, reverence. And let's get on to more important things. Well, is is fear just reverence or awe? Now, I'll say it certainly includes that. And to be clear, we are not talking, children, we are not talking about the dread of terror, not the kind of fear you have when you're watching a scary movie or something, right? Um, this uh, fear of the Lord um, is, uh, a, is clearly uh, something that includes awe and reverence, but is also consistent in the Bible with love and comfort. Comfort. We read, for instance, in Acts 9 that the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Fear and comfort in the same sentence. This is not the kind of fear that makes you run away. Uh, And so we can say that the fear of the Lord... Uh, is the realization, at the, on the one hand, that you are not the ultimate person in the universe, I mentioned that this morning, that God is someone to be reckoned with. And that that is an awe-inspiring thought, to be sure. Uh, but when you encounter this Holy One, this all-knowing, all-powerful God, the God who holds your breath in His hands, especially when you realize, perhaps, that you have sinned against Him, um, This is one before whom the saints of old trembled. And so this fear of the Lord does often include fear and trembling, we read. Um, More than just awe, reverence, fear and trembling. Let me see if I can explain it to you this way, children. uh, C.S. Lewis has, you know, written some lively fiction books called the Narnia Chronicles. One of the characters in the book is the great lion Aslan, A figure who you know represents jesus christ you remember how they first hear about him when the children first come across this aslan they are very very nervous about the thought of about the thought of meeting a lion and they ask mrs beaver is he safe you remember this right mrs beaver answered if there's anyone who could appear before aslan without their knees knocking they're either braver than most or else just silly Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. All right. This is how Lewis is explaining what the fear of the Lord Jesus means to children. He is an awesome king. Uh, when, when John, his, his dear friend who, who leaned against his breast that night in the Lord's Supper, when John sees him in his glory in Revelation 1, he falls at his feet as one dead. Um, it's, uh, it, it, before his presence, even the godly rightly tremble. But they do not flee or cower in terror because this is the same awesome God that has shown them love and tender mercy he's the king i tell you he's good he is an awesome uh, majestic ruler and yet he is one that we need to not have dread over unless of course we are on his wrong side and i'll mention that soon but the fear of the lord certainly includes respect yet i say it's much more than respect uh, i've got a neighbor who's not a christian I don't agree with him, but I I respect him. Um, I don't mind disagreeing with him. I, I I I can respect him without agreeing with him. But I dare not disagree with God because fear is a lot more than respect. It is respect, it is reverence, it is awe. But I have a proper and healthy fear, a terror of displeasing him. Even for the children of God, we are to have this fear and trembling before him you remember that well-known verse perhaps in philippians 2 work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's god who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure it's an awesome thing he's saying and it should strike you also with uh, something of the greatness that the god who made all these things is now at work in you it should motivate you to work as well so the fear of the lord yes it includes awe and respect and reverence and an unwillingness to displease or transgress against the God of heaven. And it's uh, this awareness that one so much greater than you is at the same time the God that has loved you and saved you in his grace. The fear of the Lord is the conviction that we cannot pull the wool over his eyes however we might be able to do that with others we can't do it with him we know that God is not mocked we know that whatsoever a man sows that shall he reap there's there's no escaping God we all with him must have must do and so the fear of the Lord is the certainty that in all of our living it is ultimately before God that we live and that is with him that we have to do and this is why it, it it's the thing that separates out the godly from the ungodly more than anything else we, uh, we're, we have we're having lots of people join in these uh, wonderful days. We're having another family join next week. Remember, we asked that question uh, at the very beginning. Do you confess yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, without hope, save in his love and mercy? Uh, you, you have to, at the very beginning, confess the fear of the Lord if you want to be a man, because that's the very soul of godliness. But don't leave it there, do we? We say, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners? Receive and trust in him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel, right? Because this same one that is our, our uh, dread sovereign whom we've sinned against and therefore displeased is the one whom we confess has in his great grace reached down uh, all the way down to our very humble position, come down among us, uh, God becoming man, man to deliver. And uh, this is an awesome God whom we respect and revere, um, one uh, before whom we also rightly tremble, especially to displease, and yet one that does not drive us away, one before whom we bow in adoration. And uh, we see time again in the scriptures how the, uh, the godly are um, struck but not put off when they stand in the presence of God. Well, This is uh, something, some very small definition of what it means to fear the Lord. Um, Hard to give a brief definition to this, and I tried several that I I couldn't find as well. I think that C.S. Lewis has said it as well as anybody. Um, uh, Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And uh, this is the fear of the Lord. Now, why must it be at the beginning? Um, Why is this down at the foundation? Well, as I just said, uh, if you want to know the Lord Jesus, then we must begin with the fear of the Lord. Uh, I already explained that, so let me say now in context here of Proverbs. Proverbs is giving us to the how-to of our godly living, the practical counsel that equips a believing man or a believing woman to live a fruitful life in God's world. That counsel begins with the fear of the Lord. And... um, Uh, By the the way, this this makes the Book of Proverbs very different from every other wisdom book in the ancient world. Uh, It's very popular now when you read these books and commentaries, even even by good authors, uh, not meaning any disrespect, but they'll point out that several of these proverbs are also found in the Egyptian Ma'at Book of Wisdom or in the ancient Near Eastern text of so-and-so or uh, whatever it is. It's it's true that uh, uh, the Bible doesn't have a corner on wisdom. Many of these sayings circulated freely in the ancient world back and forth and that uh, uh, the the law of God being written on every heart, we, we certainly have no corner on what is right and wise. However, it's very interesting that this phrase, the fear of the Lord and the concept that goes with it from beginning to end in Proverbs has no counterpart in the pagan wisdom of the period, that is to say, this is a biblical concept that undergirds all, that is through all, and that defines it all. Certain proverbs may be elsewhere detected, and um, uh, you know, uh, we, in our own lives, we realize that unbelievers do the same things that we do in so many ways. They they uh, do what we do for different reasons, perhaps uh, for for. for with different expectations, but um, the motive is, uh, is, is quite different in our case. The fear of the Lord sits at the beginning of all that we do and all that we live, living before the face of God. So the fear of the Lord uh, is, it, it sets out biblical religion from others. It's uh, this basic understanding of who God is and who we therefore are in his presence. And it's kind of like the ABCs and one, two, threes. You, you you learn them at the beginning and you don't forget about them. You learn them in whatever else you write, and whatever else you calculate. You 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 study some far-out physics, you're still using the same one, two, threes. You're writing great philosophy, you're still using the same ABCs. The fear of God is likewise this basis of understanding godly wisdom, this motivation and foundation that permeates all that is in this book of Proverbs and all that's in a godly life you will not learn true wisdom unless it has from the beginning the fear of the lord no matter how much of the bible you may know no matter how many how many promises you may claim in light of the bible's teaching unless you have this experiential knowledge you have not learned the first thing another inescapable conclusion is this if we are to grow in wisdom and grow in knowledge then we must maintain and increase the fear of god which is the basis of these things that we must study deeper into the nature of God, the right views of the character of God. We must meditate upon who he is and who we are. There is no fear unless we know who God is and what he's like, drives us back to the Bible. There must be a pervasive sense of the presence of God. The essence of walking in the fear of God is not simply knowing God and his character, but to to sense that uh, he is there and he is with us and therefore we live in his light. And so for all these and other reasons we could mention, but uh, the fear of the Lord is down at the beginning, at the foundation of all these things. Well, I want to have a a third practical point now. As uh, Solomon makes this practical, as the rest of the Bible then takes up this theme and applies it to us, I'd like to bridge now into Paul's letters especially, where he takes this fear up and uh, applies it practically to many areas of the Christian life. Why is fear the foundation of all wisdom, um, the beginning of wisdom, practical wisdom in the Christian life? Um, well, the Bible tells us in a great many ways how this, how this works out. Um, the greatest thing that I, I can tell you, though, um, is a, a summary statement here the, the biggest reason that the fear of the Lord is practical is because of this. Uh, Psalm 147, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. God himself is near to those who fear him. God greatly delights in them. He especially shows them his fatherly care. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Those who fear the Lord are his close covenant friends who know him intimately, Psalm 25. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Only those who fear him find joy and delight in him. We sang it earlier, oh, taste and see the Lord is good. How happy is the man who trusts in him. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There's no want to those who fear him. Um, In in everything else I could say about how we should live in this area of life, how we should live in that area of life, let me just point out the obvious. God is with those who fear him. God has an eye to them. God is at work in their lives. God is... um, sovereignly uh... um, in control of all things we know he cares for all of his children i realize and yet time and time and time again when the bible commends to us the fear of the lord he says look if you want to uh... grow if you want to walk in a way that pleases him if you want to uh... live out the godly life it is with this foundation of fear that we find the lord is powerfully there but um how is this practical you say okay i get the big big picture but um how does this help me monday morning well where are you going on monday morning probably going to work some of you and uh i tell you the fear of the lord will completely redefine your employer and your attitude and it will the more you think about it for in ephesians chapter six this is very plainly laid out bond servants be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with Fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ Doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men Knowing that whatever good anyone does he will receive the same from the Lord whether he's slave or free and you masters You do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master is also in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Right, and astonishing, four times in the passage, he he says to slaves, to bond servants, um, as I mentioned this morning, you're no longer to work for that guy. You you have a new new employer, one that will compensate you. Right, from the Lord you will receive the recompense. whatever the one does in service mindful of the lord he will receive the same from him either bond or free so um, the passage reminds us that as we are going to work we are uh, reminded that uh, we we are not just alone working for a a grumpy pointy-haired boss something like that Um, that uh, ultimately we are serving the lord christ in sincerity that we we realize he is there that he is present that he is the lord and it's him that we must be mindful of as we pass our days and this will transform our experience on monday morning Uh, obviously this is very practical in the ministry of the church and what we do here probably the fear of the lord is suffering more today than in previous generations absent uh, from preaching from worship, from evangelism, from the general consciousness of the church more and more. Uh, I don't have any statistics to back this up. You know, I like to prove things to you if I'm gonna make some claim like that, but maybe you'll stipulate that uh, the fear of the Lord just doesn't sit much on our minds. And I think this is a great loss to the church and to our souls in every way for many reasons. One of them is um, we simply will not do what we need to do without the fear of the Lord without the soul of godliness. For example, speaking of our evangelism, Paul says, look, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, uh, Jesus in, in, uh, in, in context, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. We've known the terror of the Lord, actually, is what uh, another translation says here. No fear, no evangelism. Um, we used to hear about nations perishing that uh, nations under the judgment of God. Uh, uh, Phrases like these, which uh, I realize, without any uh, other statement, might be excessively morbid, perhaps have been overused at times, but we certainly have the opposite state now, do we not? There's been an enormous decrease in foreign missions, in part because because there is no fear of God, because people don't think that there actually is a a judgment in which Christ will judge the world in righteousness, and uh, no fear, no evangelism. Uh, just one of many things that I might say we need to begin at the beginning if we are to serve him again if we are to worship him again as we must Uh, we know in times of revival the fear of the Lord is present and powerfully felt well you read about the first great awakening you read about the times of Edwards and the tenants and Whitfield and the the powerful ways that that God seemed to be uh not, not just near but but right there in the assembly and how people uh would cry and tremble uh so it is when god is powerfully at work this is a foundation for all of our work and worship in the church and we are suffering suffering greatly in practical ways because it's absent it's very practical in the home it is the basis of parenting in so many ways we read so many passages about children that are to be raised in the fear of the lord come you children we just sang. listen to me i'll teach you the fear of the lord well how important uh, is this, that uh, uh, the fear of the Lord is uh, the basis of instruction in the home? Well, you, you know we're, we're having this uh, immigration crisis now. Uh, I think practically every, everybody knows that, right? Uh, except for a, a few people in Washington DC that are running the show, I'm sorry to say. but. Uh, um, people are worried about uh, what all these people are, are going to, to do now in the, in the country. And it's, it's a very reasonable question, I suppose. But back in 1979, a man wrote this. Listen, during the past 10 years, as an army of over 30 million people have come to the United States, 30 million people, Because they arrived one by one and appearing innocent and harmless, we have not suspected their potential power. Someday soon, however, we shall awaken to the fact that this army has taken over our nation. They will publish our papers, operate our radio and television stations, control our churches, and teach in our schools. They will capture Washington and dominate the federal government as well as the administration of each state. They will take over businesses and industry, including the control of atomic energy. Complete authority will be in their hands. All that will remain for the rest of us will be to submit and die. This army, of course, is an army of children. We have the power to decide whether these future conquerors of our country are to be pagan or Christian. Um, What will it be like if a great generation arises that doesn't know the fear of the Lord? You don't want to be around to find out uh what will our nation's future be it will depend on whether we have said to our children as we are taught in proverbs 24 my son fear the lord how practical is this fear of the lord in our home well you think about the marriage relationship by which godly wives are even able to win their unbelieving husbands peter puts it this way wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word they may be one without a word When they see the conduct, excuse me, your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, which he explains is rooted in the fear of the Lord. Or Paul writes, uh, give thanks all of you always in the Father, uh, to the Father in all things, submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord, so forth. Uh, let, each one, "...let each husband love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respect," or, it's the same word, "...fear her husband," that is to say, "...as unto the Lord." It is eminently practical, uh, of all the things that could be, could be told wives and later children, it's that uh, in the fear of the Lord, they ought to conduct themselves so at home, showing respect as is proper in their own relationships. One other area I'd like to mention briefly that I think needs more attention today is, uh, is government. Um, we have in the book of Exodus the, the record of uh, Moses' problem of, of, of trying to rule over this great nation and administer justice in, uh, uh, amidst a large number of people. And you remember the suggestion made by Jethro, his father-in-law, that, that Moses uh, may select men to help administer justice. And uh, the Lord confirms this. This is just what you need to do. Now, what are the requirements given to those men who are to become the rulers and, and judges of Israel? We have this record in Exodus 18. You shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way that they must walk and the work that they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. Of all the requirements that could be thought of for men to rule, to be set at the pinnacle of importance, the first thing mentioned is that they need to fear God. Whatever qualities they may have besides that, um, they are not fit to administer justice to men if they do not fear the author of justice. So in the words, the last words of David recorded for us, 2 Samuel 23, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning when clouds, like tender grass, spring out of the earth by clear shining after rain. In other words, what a what a beautiful, refreshing, life-giving scene it is when men that fear God are ruling. This is not just for rulers of Israel. Psalm 2 calls all the rulers of the Gentile nations, kings and judges alike, to be instructed to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Well, more could be said, but uh, why, why would this be? Why would the fear of the Lord be the primary requirement for ruling over men? And um, by the way, not only true of ancient Israel, but uh, of virtually every Christian land in the West until the 19th century, still true in the constitutions of many states in America, even if it's neglected. Why should the fear of the Lord be the primary character requirement of those ruling over men? I'd like to suggest a few reasons. First of all, those who have no fear of God eventually plunge both themselves and their nations into ruin. We just read in Psalm 2, you kiss the sun, his wrath to turn, lest you perish in the way. Consider that time, next time you cast your vote. Those who have no fear, secondly, are called fools and um, destined to flood the land with inequity and misery. Proverbs 29, the king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And we read then the result: They are corrupt, they do abominable works. Third, those who have no fear of God tend toward tyranny, as though they were God, or injustice, because they fear the people rather than fearing God. So uh, Nehemiah writes, for instance, about all those former governors that were before me, How they laid burdens on the people and they took bread and wine and 40 shekels like they you know they 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 treated themselves pretty well those oriental rulers as they virtually all did right yet even their servants bore rule over the people but i did not do so because of the fear of god why was nehemiah unlike every other ruler in the east because he feared the lord remember how abraham he went down to egypt with his beautiful wife And he he told a lie, which he shouldn't have done, but he he gave this explanation. I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they're going to kill me, right? Rulers who do not fear God will end up on one hand often as tyrants, as it was in Nehemiah's time. And then there's the other problem. If they only fear men, as they're inclined to do in a democracy, they tend to promote injustice, liberty, license you, you get sinful permissiveness from those rulers and that's a big problem in american social compact theory i won't get into but the rulers here are ants answerable primarily to the people they maintain office by the fear of men rather than the fear of god like 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 having parents who could be thrown out of office by their children give us what we want or we'll find somebody else that will but uh, the bible reminds us that good government comes when people are wise enough to have rulers that fear the lord more than them Um, You you know, we we uh, don't actually have a religious test for office in our federal government, except that um, we do have in the in the in the oath. Not every oath, but in in many of the oaths of office, as well as in the um, uh, swearing in of court. So help me God. And the Supreme Court's actually ruled on this and uh, pointed out that even though we don't have any we don't have any religious test for office, that people at least need to fear in so many ways the uh, uh, fear the Lord if they are able to make that oath as a requirement of their office. So it's this interesting tension that we actually have here where we have no religious test, but if you're gonna take the oath for office, you better fear the Lord. Simon Greenleaf, um, founder of Harvard, Harvard uh, Law School, I've quoted him before, eminent, uh, became an eminent Christian, um, but uh, he, he writes about, uh, in our country, about, about people who are being sworn in to testify in court. That there's a, this third class of persons that is incompetent to testify are those who are insensible to the obligations of an oath, who defect from religious sentiment or belief. The very nature of an oath, being religious and a most solemn appeal to God as the judge of men, presupposes that the witness believes in the existence of an omniscient supreme being, who is the rewarder of truth and the avenger of falsehood, and that by such a formal appeal, the conscience of the witness is affected. But without this belief, a person cannot be um, expected to give the truth." He goes on and says it in much better words. Uh, Very interesting observation. So. So the Constitution still of various states has this as a requirement. What kind of scoundrels will we have in office if we get men in there that don't fear God and that only want to fear men and serve themselves? It's a recipe for disaster. The Bible says very clearly, very practically, very plainly, whatever other requirements they meet, they they, they might need to have. They, They have this religious test of office. They need to be able to say, so help me God, when they step into that position. In conclusion, I'm going to move on a little more quickly here. Um, We are all on one path or another, in education, in government, in our families, in our church, in our thoughts, in our hearts. It's going one way or another. And Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. When we uh, forget the fear of the Lord, it it does perhaps endear us more to the spirit of this age, but there are many times in history when the church has hitched itself to the spirit of the age and become a widow in the next. Uh, If we are to live the Christian life as we ought, if we were to have a church and families and and, uh, some hope for our nation, We need to begin at the beginning. We need to lay the foundation. We need to heed the word of the Lord from beginning to end and bow before it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless us, certainly in our hearts, first with this fear, with this understanding that uh, you alone are God, that you um, uh, dwell on high and yet Uh, humble yourself to behold the things that are done on the earth that you are our father but in heaven and so this uh transcendent and yet imminent god is uh, a god with whom we have to do we are thankful that we do not stand naked in our own righteousness before you for then we would tremble in fear and pray that the very mountains would fall upon us and hide us from your face but in our lord jesus christ this tension being answered We are able, on the one hand, to come boldly before the throne of grace, knowing that in Christ Jesus you have uh, perfected those who are being sanctified by that one offering, that you have received us as blameless in your sight. And so we are bold to come before you as those who claim your name and as who walk in your ways. But secondly, we we do come in, in humility, knowing that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Uh, we recognize when we come before you that uh, we are a people of unclean lips. We live in the midst of many, we have an un, uh, unclean lips, and our eyes are beholding the King, the Lord of hosts. We say, O oh Lord, woe to us, forgive us. Who will deliver us from this body of death? We thank you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So as we come again to his table, we pray that uh, this grace that first taught our hearts to fear would also our fears relieve. And we pray that once again in him we would stand renewed and um, uh, beloved uh, before you in your sight and in your presence. Uh, We humble ourselves and we greatly receive these gifts of your majestic grace and we thank you for your provision for them.